I remember this Doonesbury cartoon where Michael Doonesbury is, you know, he's something's happening with his knee and he's talking with the doctor there and the doctor's saying, well, we could do this, we could do that. And then there's a voice behind the doctor said, no, we're not going to do that. And Michael goes, hmm, are you a specialist? Oh, no, I'm the insurance adjuster. <laughs> you know, I'm the one who's going to pay for it. But, you know, that's kind of one of the noble truths is the one who gets to pay for the service gets to determine what service is delivered. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. When you think of the U.S. Postal Service today, you probably think of a broken relic of another time, an inefficient aspect of government easily chalked up to the problems usually associated with bureaucracy, partisanship, and a job that's hard to be fired from. For sure, the post office has missed a few steps as communication technologies have advanced our capacity to connect both in time and in distance. However, I recently read History of the Post Office and How It Shaped America. Indeed, it did. In the same way that DNA shapes a body, just like with Chinese medicine, we understand how information in the channels of communication upon which it travels gives rise to the very structures that allow for life and being. When it was first conceived during the Revolutionary War and the early days of the Republic, the post office was the communication technology. It helped to weave together the disparate views and goals of 13 fractious colonies. It was novel in that the aim was to allow everyday citizens an opportunity to communicate and connect in a way that previously the noble and privileged of Europe had access to. The mail service was designed to encourage communication between individuals, to share the news of the day, and to promote discussion of the issues, which were as contentious then as they are today. The United States was anything but united at the beginning. The mail routes of the Postal Service, those tentative, fragile channels of communication, would later become the roads, river routes, and then rail lines as steam power replaced horsepower, and then the internal combustion engine that changed it all again. It would not be inaccurate to say that it was the internet of its day. It was aimed at facilitating communication in a low-cost and democratic way. There were those who said it would foment division and rebellion, and those who came down on the side of thinking more voices honestly in the conversation, well, that would help create a country and a culture that was more fair for all. The South hated that anti-slavery materials were available for anyone who could read. The city dwellers of the Northeast, they were upset that their postal rates helped to subsidize the expense of sending letters out into the wild frontier. The gripes we have now about how and if information gets distributed, the arguments over what is news and what is fake, what is truth and what is sedacious, those did not suddenly appear in the past 10 years. They were there in the beginning. But the goal of the mail was connection and communication, and it was a big influence on elevating literacy rates in a young, experimental democracy. It allowed for commerce 
in the exchange of money. And of course, it was used by shysters and grifters to ply their confidence trades, just as it was used by activists to help abolish slavery and bring the vote to women. The democratic principles of the male came down solidly on the side that everyone should have an opportunity to speak their mind. Freedom of speech, as the book points out, is not easy. It creates all kinds of troubles, but it has also helped to create a culture that can tolerate differences and be a vital marketplace for ideas. Separating the clear from the dross? That's a small intestine function. Do we allow for the freedom to do that for ourselves, or do we relegate that to some larger governmental agency? It's a big question in our modern moment, and it's a question that's been asked and answered throughout the American experiment of the past 250 years. We can, in no small measure, thank the post office for the independent streak that most of us take for granted. Histories are, in a sense, creation stories. They explain the present through the influences of the past, and in a multicultural country, there will be wildly different stories. That's not a bug. That's a feature. And diverse perspectives have the capacity to bring a wider and more inclusive view or act in a divisive way. I suspect it is the strength and proper functioning of one's E that determines which way it goes. In this conversation with John Scott, we take a trip in the Wayback Machine to the 1960s and 70s as Chinese medicine was finding its way from immigrant cultures into the mainstream of America. Did those times have their troubles? You bet they did. And did they contain new opportunities as well? Listen in and find out. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, 
Trust Mei Wei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code CHEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hello, my name is Anthony Vondermel, and in today's Shop Talk, I'm going to share with you something that I've learned that has been very valuable in my specialty practice of uh, orthopedics, acupuncture orthopedics, and sports medicine, and chronic neuromuscular skeletal pain management, but I think is also of use to the general practitioner, which is needling joints and ligamentous connective tissues to restabilize a hypermobile joint and provide the underlying structural stability for the muscles across that joint. Uh, This is something that um, I learned kind of the hard way from my treatment frustrations and failures from my first few years out of acupuncture school, where What I had been taught at the master's level kind of worked some of the time and sometimes not so well of simply using traditional acupuncture point locations or probing around for tender areas in muscles and, uh, you know, osher points or myofascial trigger points. 
and needling into them or using massage or twina, gua sha, cupping, etc. And some of the time I got satisfactory results. Maybe talking specifically today, I'm going to really focus on the shoulder girdle area and the shoulder region. I would say maybe 60% of the time. But I would have a lot of treatment failures or relapses where I felt like I was playing whack-a-mole with trigger points and, and tender areas that kept coming back and, and results that didn't last. So what if underneath the, the musculature, the yang, the superficial that grabs our attention that people like to see and feel and touch, whether you're working out in a gym or you're a massage therapist, there was something else hidden that was at the root of chronic dysfunction and pain and disability. I discovered the, the importance of ligaments and capsular tissues and joints by taking a, a series of classes with Dr. Alon Marcus, who was kind of a specialist in this area, who has since retired but published a couple of books on the topic. And that made, made me understand how the, the structural stability of a joint is crucial to the functioning of the muscles that cross that joint. But ligaments are missing from most undergraduate anatomy texts. This was new to me, and they were not emphasized at all in my training in, in uh, the master's level of acupuncture. And yet ligaments link bones to bones to form joints. And when the link is missing, sprained or torn or degenerated, joint hypermobility and pain and disability and eventually degeneration follow. So I used to say this is the missing link, if you'll pardon the pun, in acupuncture education. And yet it has become a mainstay. It is basically my go-to tool for most patients most of the time when treating musculoskeletal pain and disability. So it's important to understand just how common and ubiquitous joint sprains are. Ankle sprains are the number one cause of urgent care visits in the U.S., approximately 5,000 a day and involved in about 20% of all sports injuries. Other most commonly sprained joints are the chromioclavicular and glenohumeral joints of the shoulder girdle and also the knee joint. And sprains are often immediately disabling and, and cannot be played through by force of will. The biomechanical failure, for example, of a severely sprained ankle joint just simply cannot put weight on that leg until the tissues are restabilized. And yet, here's the tricky thing, is that after the acute stage of an injury to a joint or ligaments, when the inflammatory cycle subsides, they can become asymptomatic. They are not perpetuated by things like psychosocial stress and, uh, and repeated overuse that tend to cause recurrent uh, muscle tension and muscle pain, for example. So an old uh, ankle sprain, maybe sprained in childhood on the playground in one leg, can be totally silent and asymptomatic in somebody in their 50s or their 70s. And yet decades of chronic gait dysfunction from an unstable ankle will start to cause symptoms in the opposite leg. So we have to think outside the pain box and think about structure and think about function in order to really address a root cause here. Why is it a root cause? Uh, well, Ligaments are different than muscles in their, in their tissue composition. They have poor blood supply, and they're not very elastic, and they don't heal well on their own. They don't have abundant chi and blood the way muscles do. And so when a ligament or a joint is sprained, we, we often get chronic hypermobility in certain planes of motion and maybe eventually hypomobility in other planes of motion. And that dysfunction of the joint makes it vulnerable to repeated sprains. That's why once an ankle is badly sprained, it's very common for patients to continue to repeatedly sprain that same ankle. 
inside the joint that typically leads eventually to progressive degeneration of the tissues and osteoarthrosis. Outside the joint, a lot of compensatory overloading of muscles, tendons, and myofascial strains result, trigger point formation, adhesions, tendonitis, tendinosis, the chronic stage, bursitis. Nerves can get sensitized or, or compressed or damaged. And other joints up and down the chain, for example, the uh, sprained AC uh, joint in the shoulder can lead to problems in the glenohumeral joint, the cervical facet joints, and all the way down to the wrist or the fingers. And chronic pain and disability are the result. So to get a little more specific, for example, the, imagine that the AC joint is sprained. Well, the clavicle is the only bone that attaches the arm to the axial skeleton. At, the, at either ends of the clavicle lie these two small joints, the sternoclavicular joint, a little more stable and less often sprained, and the very vulnerable AC joint at the tip of the shoulder where it attaches to the uh, acromion of the scapula. So when e either or both of those joints are separated or, or, or sprained and become somewhat unstable, that clavicle floating around can do several things. It can directly impinge upon the brachial plexus, the nerve bundle that supplies the entire arm. And it can cause a lot of secondary regional compensatory muscular tension, trying to make up for the unstable clavicle by tightening up the upper trapezius, uh, which results in a lot of neck pain and neck dysfunction that can eventually start to, to damage cervical nerve roots. And we get radiculitis or radiculopathy in the arm. Or the brachial plexus, again, may get squeezed by tight scalene muscles or a tight pec minor that are trying to make up for the loss of stability of that clavicle. There are many examples of this in the body. Uh, the, the median and ulnar nerve can get irritated by sprained wrist joints from a fall in an outstretched hand. An unstable dysfunctional sacroiliac joint or hip joint can cause compensatory tightening of the piriformis and other muscles in the buttock, then compressing the sciatic nerve. And there's not a lot of good options other than acupuncture, other than needling into these tissues. Surgery can sometimes uh, reattach macroscopically torn tissues in the acute stage of an injury. But if it's been several months or, or certainly years, the surgeon will often say this is kind of like trying to staple together two pieces of wet paper towel. It just won't hold. Surgery has other risks, of course, like adhesive capsulitis. Uh, the surgical risks that we're all familiar with, an infection and putting a patient under general anesthesia, surgical failure, hardware failure, allergic reactions, etc. Medications, and I have to add, even uh, herbs and dietary supplements can reduce pain and inflammation, but by themselves, they don't regenerate ligaments or joint tissue or restore structural stability. And repeated cortisone or NSAIDs may actually weaken ligaments and carry very systemic risks. Well, what about if you have a background like myself as a massage therapist, as an athlete who likes to stretch, somebody who likes to practice Qigong, wouldn't all those be helpful? Not so much. They may actually worsen joint hypermobility by stretching tissues that actually need to contract, need to restabilize, need to shorten and tighten up. And what does work to do this is probing those tissues with a needle. How does that work? not terribly well understood in Western biomechanical terms. In Chinese medicine, we can say, well, we're improving the flow of qi and blood. And, uh, and yes, that's certainly one way of looking at it. Uh, there is an immediate, a very interesting, immediately verifiable effect upon withdrawing a needle from a hypermobile joint, which you can determine by learning the skill of joint plate testing. 
this is a physical skill, a manual skill. I personally found it much easier to, to rapidly gain some, some mastery of it than, for example, TCM pulse diagnosis. And by probing around in you know, the acromioclavicular joint and then repeating something that's called the AC shear test or the, the acromioclavicular you know, shear test, we can feel that the joint is actually tighter and more stable. And that probably has to do with a reflexive uh, activation of small contractile fibers that are not under voluntary control, but, but are part of the ligamentous structure of the joint. And then what's really interesting and rewarding is that even out of a single needling session, for the next six months or so, connected tissue will, will continue to build in that area. It's the same process as callus formation on fingers or, you know, if you play a stringed instrument or feet from walking on uh, rough surfaces without shoes. Um, the irritation of the tissue causes the release of tissue growth factors. And in the joint, what this does is it, it causes collagen formation, collagen fiber deposition in the joint. So acupuncture has a great risk to benefit ratio uh, compared to anything else for restabilizing uh, a hypermobile joint. And to help understand this a little further, as I said earlier, you know, muscles have a lot of chi and blood. They respond very well. They self into treatment. They self-repair very quickly. And they're very elastic. But ligaments are more like, instead of like a rubber band, like a muscle, ligaments are more like silly putty. If you ever played with silly putty as a child, you remember how you stretch it out, it gets thin and weak, develops little holes in it, and eventually just snaps, and it will not recoil on its own unless it's stimulated by a needle. So I think perhaps another reason that this is a, a missing link in our education is that there's a lot of fear around causing septic joints. And indeed, septic joints are very serious, but this is easily prevented by scrupulous clean needle technique. And personally, I add, I exceed the standards of the clean needle technique manual by using uh, either betadine or chlorhexidine swab on the surface of the skin. These actually sterilize the skin and kill microbes versus rubbing alcohol, which simply cleans the skin. And, you know, a few patients you have to ask whether they have an allergy to betadine or chlorhexidine, and it's very rare. And in, in that case, you just don't want to use this technique. But um, I've almost never encountered that. And other than that, there are no major blood vessels, there are no arteries inside of joints, there are no vital internal organs inside of joints. So as long as you're clean needle technique, using very clean needle technique, it's quite safe. And here's what I'm looking for, and, and try this on yourself. Run your fingers along your clavicle out to the lateral edge, to the, to the tip or point of the shoulder, and feel carefully for a little horizontal, slight bony uh, cleft, or a cleft between two bones, between the clavicle which lies on top of the acromion. And if you have chronic shoulder pain or even or acute shoulder pain, any shoulder pain, very likely you will find a little tender area uh, around the circumference of the end of the clavicle. That would be the location I would needle into. And what I'm looking for when I needle into a, a joint or ligament is a reproduction of the patient's typical symptoms, an aching sensation maybe referring up to the neck or down the arm. And the patient says, oh yeah, that's it. That's, that's the pain I've been feeling. But I'll take any, any tenderness, any local area that feels tender in that area. That's an indication that that tissue is, is a little inflamed um, and somewhat degenerated. And only a couple of minutes of probing around, withdraw the needle. It does not need to be retained. Recheck the joint. Typically, it is much more stable. If not, I might have to go back in once or twice to restabilize, uh, to do a little bit more probing of the needle. But you can see if it only takes a couple of minutes, you can actually treat a lot of body areas in a single session 
and and get a lot done very quickly. So th- that's my introduction to joint n- needling. And if this is at all interesting and useful to you, I invite you to check out my high-quality pre-recorded distance learning webinar uh, that's available on my website for HCUs and PDAs. I pr- partnered with a professional videographer to produce this. And I also teach a couple times a year on on both coasts of the U.S., uh, my next class is uh, in Oakland and California on Saturday, July 8th. And um, I hope you will, will join me in exploring this, this missing link in the treatment of chronic neuromuscular skeletal pain and disability. You can find out more information at www.aomprofessional.com forward slash geological. That's Q-I-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. Thank you for your time and your attention, and I hope this has been helpful for you. John Scott, welcome to Geological. Hi, Michael Max. Um, It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I'm delighted to have you. I'm delighted to talk to everybody here. I don't even know why people want to talk to me. I'm just this guy here in the Midwest asking a bunch of damn questions. But, uh, you know, our medicine's so interesting. It's just so wildly, weirdly interesting. And you've been at it a while. Yeah, it's, um, uh, gosh, it started for me in 1977 as I, me and other close friends embraced vegetarianism. And then it was like, okay, now what do I eat? And then it was like, oh, there's something called reflexology, you know, iridology, reflexology, and, you know, looking and books like Back to Eden was one of these early books we were exposed to. And the, there was an herb shop in Austin, Texas, where I was living, and I used to hang out there. And, you know, there was herbs that were hanging from the ceiling, from the rafters, and, you know, herbs in jars, and you know, going on herb walks with the herbalist and picking cleavers, you know, that would grow just in these vacant lots. Are you familiar with cleavers? I am not. I have no idea what a cleaver is. I thought it was, I thought it was like a big knife. You cut meat with it. It is, but it's a herb that it proliferates in the springtime, and it's used a lot for detoxifying the kidney and the liver in uh, Western herbal medicine. But what happens is you pick it up, and it's got these sticky birthings, and you stick it on the jacket or a sweater or shirt of your friend you're walking with. Here, cleavers, yeah. Okay, I remember that to some degree. So 1977, like, what was going on? I mean, what was going on in the world? And what is it that, all right, you're into vegetarian, iridology, there's these, these different things going on. What, like, what was happening around you that had you begin to focus on this stuff? Well, in the 70s, there was a renaissance, an interest in herbs and herbal medicine. And Mark Blumenthal, who is the president of the American Botanical Council and founder of that, who had a wholesale company in the 70s called Sweetheart Herbs, there was these meetings with these kind of back-to-earth hippies, these long-haired folks, and, you know, women wearing uh, those, you know, dresses that, you know, women wore in those days. And Mormons got together to, for uh, this mutual interest. And that was kind of, the, you know, the genesis of what's become a, a very significant con- concern. You know, and at, around that same time, you know, after uh, Richard Nixon's trip to China 
and uh, was he a New York Times? It was a guy, I think his name was James Reston, who had an emergency appendectomy. And when he wrote about the acupuncture treatment he received for the post-operative pain, you know, it made the media, which sparked this uh, interest in, oh, what's this acupuncture? And then we started having, um, you know, people like Ted Kapchuk and Dan Bensky and other folks that went to China to study acupuncture. And this was a, uh, a you know, we've had, and I was mentioning, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin's grandson had gotten a book from France about acupuncture. And so he was investigating it and he was treating prisoners, you know, experimenting on prisoners because this thought was thought to be so outlandish and, and, and um, you know, odd that he had to practice on prisoners and not just ordinary folk. And of course, we've had Chinese medicine, you know, since the Chinese came to, you know, build the railroad. And, you know, there's uh, media reports about, you know, famous uh, Chinese doctors, you know, prescribing herbs and people being, you know, arrested for practicing medicine without a license in various parts of the country. Right. I mean, the Chinese, of course, brought it with them. It's part of the culture. Why wouldn't they? They brought that along with, you know, many other aspects of their culture. There's a famous doc, oh, I'm, and I'm blanking on his name, but he was out in like John Day, Oregon. I can see the book. It's a red and white book. But yeah, he was treating Chinese people and he was treating uh, foreigners, not foreigners, Americans. It, and so there's that. It's so interesting how a good idea comes in somewhere. You know, I mean, I suspect that acupuncture you know, was long in the Chinese community. But then, I mean, the thing that's fascinating to me is like how it starts to like crawl over the boundaries of culture and start sprouting up in Hippieville, USA in the 70s. Well, we had people, um, you know, like Miriam Lee, who, you know, in uh, San Francisco Bay Area, who was uh, arrested and taken to jail. And because of this case that went through the courts in the media attention and the massive support she got from her patients brought this up for uh, eventually to being a bill that was passed. And now it was Governor uh, Jerry Brown who signed this first practice. Governor Moonbeam. Yeah, yeah. And before he was running now, the man who was governor before him, who had connections in Chinatown, I don't remember his name, but his name is plastered in different places, you know, on buildings. But he refused to sign the bill. And when Jerry Brown was running, he promised to the folks in Chinatown, you know, that he would sign the bill. And the, you know, the uh, Asian community in San Francisco was a very important uh, political constituency. So that was like, you know, the very beginning, you know, then we had in, was that, I think it was 76, you know, when the New England school was founded and uh, you had, um, what's his name? Steve Rosenblatt, Gene Bruno, who had brought Dr. So to this country. Uh, there was some work at UCLA and it was considered all exper experimental. But so we had, you know, these, these early schools that, were set up. Isn't it funny? You know, use the word experimental. Talking about Benjamin Franklin's grandson experimenting on prisoners. I guess, you know, the lab rat of the day. Uh, we'll, we'll try it on prisoners. You know, I mean, they're prisoners. What the hell? 
experimental. It's like it's like such a small stimulation, you know. But still, ooh, experimental. Because you're like, why is it experimental? Because it's so maybe because it's just so out of the box from the Western mind. Yeah, and you know, in those days, what we now consider Western medicine was in a very primitive state. I mean, in the early 19th century, I mean, there really wasn't any status or money in, in medicine. I mean, it was just so, you know, much more uh, primitive than what we have now. It's, it's come a long way. And, you know, in 2018, I was fortunate enough to be a part of the American delegation uh, for the World Acupuncture Day in Paris at UNESCO, which is United Nations. Uh, it's a science and cultural organization. They're centered in Paris. And um, so it was a, you know, a United Nations recognition of World Acupuncture Day. And uh, there were acupuncturists from all over the world, a very strong Western contingent. And there was a fellow from Yunnan province in China who has a museum on acupuncture in the West. And basically he was saying that folks in the West have basically saved acupuncture. That, um, you know, when we think about how medicine, culture are so intertwined and, you know, the teachers that we had who were trained before 1949, they brought different things than people that were trained after the Cultural Revolution, you know, and so, you know, the things that acupuncturists in the West can explore or talk about with their patients is very different from what, say, uh, an acupuncturist in PRC, in, in PRC China, can talk about, you know, because of these different cultural influences. And, and what we've seen in the West is that we have systems uh, that have emerged from very narrow parts of the Nanking and the Ling Shu. But that was really fascinating to me to hear this Chinese gentleman mention about how the West has basically saved the acupuncture as, as uh, you know, in the classical sense. Dr. Wang Jui said the same thing. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Isn't, yeah, and he and he traveled all over the world teaching acupuncture, and his... You know, I mean, he came up, you know, he was like one of the first graduating students, I think, from the Beijing College of Chinese Medicine. Of course, they learned all the ways that they're supposed to do it because, you know, PRC, but, you know, he's an inquisitive cat. So he put his hands on people and learned things. Well, and, you know, the early Chinese communist back in the early part of the 20th century rejected Chinese medicine as feudalistic. And, you know, it wasn't until like during the long March period that, gee, okay, we don't really have doctors with us, but we do have TCM. And, and they were in the Yunnan province where Sanchi and herbs that are used for, you know, uh, healing wounds uh, grow. And, and they saw, oh, okay, this is part of the uh, treasure house of, of Chinese uh, culture, knowledge, and wisdom, you know, and there were periods where PRC used Chinese medicine as a way to export their version of socialism to countries in Africa and, and Latin America. So there was 
these kind of uh, political streams in there. So I just find this all very interesting. You know, it's so surprising and unexpected in some ways how bits of tradition come down to us. You know, like you're saying, often through political or immigration, some sort of accidental, someone gets a book. Ooh, let's, let's see what this does. I, I want to come back to the 70s because you were there kind of in the beginning. You, you probably didn't have any idea you were there in the beginning. You were just there living your life and doing what seemed like a good idea as a young man. Well, and I stumbled on basically a gentleman who became my first teacher, and um, which was just a, uh, I don't know, random connection. You know, there were these classes through Grok Books in Austin. And I had seen someone who did AK muscle testing on me. And uh, this fellow was teaching uh, Touch for Health and then also teaching Chinese medicine. And I was really interested in Touch for Health, which was uh, a AK-oriented system. And, uh, and then in studying Chinese medicine, it's like, oh, wow. Oh, this is, this makes, it just made so much sense to me. And, you know, but this is also, when we think of the 70s, you know, we had the, the rigid conformist of the 50s. And then this awakening and rebellion of the 60s. And then the 70s, there was a lot of social experimentation, you know, with uh, different kinds of... Uh, like communes and cults, and a questioning of things connected with the older generation. And, um, you, know, and you know, what was it? Was it 1970, the first Earth Day? So we have all these things. We have, so we had a generation of people coming up who were questioning just about everything. And so this kind of emerging out of this particular consciousness uh, shifting going on in our greater society. So, I mean, it was, so it was part of a, a bigger kind of uh, social evolution. Yes. And, and where were you with that? What, you were drawn to vegetarianism. What was the problem you were trying to solve? Well, I was having a, uh, a health issue that uh, conventional medicine really didn't have anything to offer. And, um, and I was just curious. And, you know, it's like, you know, you, you, you find this thread of something that is interesting and, and that captures your imagination. And, you, you know, you're pulling on it and you're following it. And, and, then, uh, and then pretty soon, um, here you are. And, and when I was 19, I, had a, I was in a construction accident, lost a finger. And I have never was keen on, on needles, you know, the, you know, being in the hospital and having uh, injections. Uh, and so uh, after it occurred to me, oh, there's needles involved. <laughs> it was like, oh. And, and, but then, you know, my first acupuncture treatment, like, oh, this is different. You know, there's that kind of what they call acustone sensation. That's like uh, a resetting of consciousness. That was like, oh, this is really, oh, I like this. And, you know, if I, I want more. I want more of this. You know, my, my brain goes off from these little tangents, but I was in Germany at the TCM Congress and this gentleman was interviewing people about what happens when you put the needle in. And I, th I think what I said to him was that it kind of calls you to kind of stop, you know, like, uh, you know what I mean? Just like, okay, now you have to stop. 
you have to breathe. You have to um, kind of, you know, it, it's kind of an invitation to reset your uh, systems in a way. Yeah, so, you know, basically it was kind of like following this thread of like, oh, hmm, oh, wow, this is really fascinating. And and then even as a as a student, you know, and, and you do treatment as a student and, and people told me, oh, you've got a knack for this. And, and uh, went to Santa Fe and went to, well, it was called the Santa Fe College of Natural Medicine. And that day and uh, class of 1982 and that evolved into Institute of Traditional Medicine, which became the Southwest Acupuncture College. So it's been, uh, I mean, we only, we only had one book, you know, but we really knew that book, you know, cover to cover, you know. Isn't that amazing? Back then there was one book. And then when we got uh, the, uh, what we called it the Shanghai book, the comprehensive text from Eastland Press, it's like, wow, look at this, another book. Uh, there were some other books that were around, but they were pretty terrible. So how in those days, I mean, it's in its infancy, right? Us Westerners learning Chinese medicine in some kind of a, you know, institutional school setting. You know, it's brand new. You got one book. Soon there's going to be a second one. Like, how did you guys learn this stuff? What was it like to be a student learning this medicine at a time when it's so new? Like, who's teaching this anyway? Well, you know, um, we had four main teachers. And um, one of them had been to Europe and had notes from uh, Van Buren and from Leamington Spa and, and Chinese teachers that he'd been with. Uh, another one of our teachers was very much of kind of the Miriam Lee school. And he was, did very, very Miriam Lee style acupuncture, but he covered what he couldn't cover with that with, with herbs. And uh, one of the other teachers was a uh, martial artist. And uh, what he brought was a different flavor. He, he used a lot of five element and four needle treatments, but he wasn't like of the Worsley school. And we had another teacher who showed us things like through and through needle technique and like, okay, let's sit with your patient and throw the I Ching. We had exposure to some different flavors you know, from Europe, from China. And, um, and and that was interesting. There was another school in town uh, that was uh, a, a family, uh, Japanese family tradition. And so, but if you went there and you knew what sensei would do, right? Okay. But if, but for me, I felt like, okay, hmm, now what would J. Michael do in this situation? What would Daniel do? What would Stuart do? What would Wynn do? And, and to me, that was like, oh, I, I have different like palettes. I have different uh, streams to draw from. But, you know, it was, you know, we would start class with a you know, little meditation and, and we would do some Qigong in the yard. And, um, you know, it was just, I mean, you know, we were all in our 20s, you know, so... It just was, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was all so, uh, you know, very 
expansive. Yeah, it was just like, like okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is this is my path forward. Mm-hmm. What were your hopes and dreams at that point? <laughs> That's a good question. It's a funny question, I guess. It is. I mean, I I was a, a long haired hippie carpenter. I, you know, I had a house with four fingers. No, three fingers. Three fingers and a thumb. You like the Pillsbury Doughboy? I had a house. I had a pickup truck. I, I had electric guitars. I mean, what more could a person want, you know? And um, it was like, okay, um, I loaded everything in my truck and came to Santa Fe. Like, this is what I'm going to do. It was, it, was a, it was a leap. And then in, um, when, in 82, when I got out, I was the second acupuncturist in Austin. And uh, there was a, a, a Chinese couple who had moved to town when I was in school. And I had friends at the herb shop and sent me patients. And I had a, a, there was a massage therapist who sent me patients. And um, then it was like, okay, here we go. Here we go. Was there licensure at that point? What, or are you, you're just a hippie dude with needles? No, no, it wasn't. I mean, it, it, it was illegal for me to be doing that because at the time... Um, you had to be either a medical doctor uh, or working in a medical doctor's office under their direct supervision. And um, I was like, well, hell with that, you know. And Okay, I want to go in a little deeper into this, okay? You just got yourself an education. Yeah, you're a hippy-dippy dude. So, like, the law, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, you're flexible. But still, you're looking to make a livelihood here. And you got people sending you folks and you've already thrown in on an education, and you're kind of, like, motivated. Certainly sounds like you're motivated. But, like, okay, I'm doing this thing, and I'm illegal, and I know I'm illegal. Like, how do you sleep at night? No, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I am dead serious. You know, we hear these stories. Oh, yeah, it was illegal when I started. But, I mean, how do you live with that? That's a big-ass risk, dude. I mean, it was um, the... And actually, I think it was 1980 when a federal judge ruled that you had to be a medical doctor as being unconstitutional and restrictive to trade. But I was also, you know, feeling myself part of this movement and that to make this change, you know, and I've known, you know, uh, and, and often it takes a kind of a sacrificial lamb to start this process. Like in California, it was Miriam Lee. One of my classmates was arrested in Washington state. So he became the test case. And I knew several acupuncturists. Uh, There was a a guy named Paul uh, Ling who was arrested in in Houston, who was like a fifth generation acupuncturist. And uh, I wonder if the trauma of being dragged downtown, put in a jail cell, had something to do with the brain cancer that killed him. Uh, I know there was a gentleman named Panda Lee who was arrested. And um, uh, Paul and Lisa Lynn were also arrested. And, you know, it's funny, my daughter, gosh, she was, I guess, under five at that time. And we were talking about this. Now, you know, she has two parents as acupuncturists and all seemingly all of her adult friends. And overhearing us talk about people getting arrested for practicing acupuncture. I mean, just imagine, okay, 
you know, you're a plumber, I'm a plumber, all our friends are plumbers, and our kid hears us talk about someone who's arrested for putting down pipe. Uh, it was just so weird. And um, I remember, you know, and I, I treated people that all walks of life, people that were business owners and um, school teachers, you know. And in um, 83, we had a, um, a licensure bill that we introduced, and the former Speaker of the House was our, was our lobbyist. We paid him quite a, little, a lot of money, and it failed. The, Mex the medical society said, basically, kill the bill. And that was it, because they own the legislature. I remember I was asking our lobbyist, you know, who is under their, you know, who do they, uh, who are their closest friends? And he said, oh, John, you know, they give money to everyone, whether they think they're a friend or a foe. Uh, and in 85, the same kind of thing. In 87, they came around and said, what do you guys want anyway? So the mood was starting to shift. There was more practitioners coming to Austin, you know, by that time. So in um, 81, we had a bill that almost passed, but the bill would have mandated a chiropractor on our board, and it died in the last minutes uh, of the session. We, we, so we watched it die and going, okay, that's good. And then in 93, it was, it was finally passed. And I hope I didn't get that. In, but in the meantime, I would go down to the Capitol, you know, during the session, we'd be treating patients, you know, in a lobbyist office. And, uh, but I remember getting a call, I'm trying to remember, you know, of course you couldn't get insurance coverage because it wasn't legal, you know, so. You're basically an outlaw. Yeah, and it was all cash. That's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great thing. You can do whatever you want. And I had no debt, so I didn't have to charge a lot of money. What is it that brought people in to see an outlaw, for God's sake? Well, you know, there was, I mean, sure, a lot of folks that come in, they've seen this specialist, they've seen these doctors, and they've gotten, you know, no success, no results. And, uh, you know, people go to the herb store or a friend would say, oh, you need to see John Scott. And actually, Austin is the... A meeting point of three different ecosystems. So uh, allergies are a very uh, huge uh, issue for folks. And I remember I had a patient to work for the newspaper. And uh, he said, when I have a nasty bout of allergy, I turn myself into one of John Scott's pin cushions. And the phone rang off the wall. I, I, I had a waiting list, you know, that went on for months. Uh, and that was back when phones were on walls. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it almost sounds, John, like it was an idea. It was something that was looking to spring forth, and it just found people to work itself through. Exactly. You know, and there was, a, you know, states where it wasn't legal, where people were practicing, despite the, you know, the uh, legal ramifications, you know, and I remember I was at a national convention and there was people like Su Leon Koo and Ralph Cohen, you know, and talking about, oh gosh, boy, if you weren't arrested, then you weren't even there. You're not a real practitioner. You're not a real acupuncturist. You haven't been arrested at least once. Yeah, it was, you know, Jake Fracken got arrested in, in Chicago, 
you know, back in the day. So it was, and often it took an arrest to make a test case that would get thrown out and that would challenge the, uh, you know, the medical authorities. Okay. So this is really interesting. I hadn't thought about this. I didn't come along onto this scene until like the early nineties, I started getting treatments and then started studying, you know, a bit after that. But what I'm hearing here is there are people that were willing to, to kind of put their life on the line in a sense. I mean, not that they're going to get the electric chair or something, but I mean, you decide to do something as a livelihood, knowing that that rug could be pulled out from under you at any moment. And that was part of the development that yes, there's going to be folks getting busted. It's going to draw attention. It's going to go through the courts in the way that it goes through courts. And this is the beginning of the change. Yeah, I mean, our generation were passionate enough that it's like, okay, um, despite the, uh, the, the law, despite the medical society, we're going to do this. And, you know, patients demand it. And, you know, in, in every state, you know, it's, we've been really lucky to come as far as we have in the few years that we've been around as a profession. And it's really because our patients love what we have to offer. You know, Americans resonate with acupuncture and Chinese medicine. You know, they've been open to it. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. What other part would you say the patients have played, especially in the legality side of things? Um, I mean, we've had patients that are willing to go to the legislative, you know, go to the Capitol and testify. And, um, and we've been lucky that to have patients that were connected politically, and, you know, and everywhere, I mean, you, what do you call that? Six degrees of separation. Everybody knows someone who knows someone who can, who can be helpful. And uh, that's been, I think, uh, and this has been something that has been so helpful for the healing path of, of so many people that conventional medicine, you know, doesn't have that much to offer. I mean, you know, acupuncturists, I actually listen to patients. You know, it's one of the four methods where for a lot of people in conventional medicine, they're sitting there with a prescription pad and have to, you know, see someone new every six minutes. 
you know, there's that pressure of, of corporatized medicine. And, you know, in the 80s, there was also the start of the managed care, which has evolved into what it is now, you know. And I mean, and now, you know, we have a medical system that nobody likes. Patients hate it. Providers hate it. The only people that like it are the CEOs of these big corporations, you know, that to manage care, you know. So it's, and I wish there was a way to organize kind of a, a parallel system. But I think that there's, um, what do you call it? You know, when I got out of school, I mean, I'll, I didn't have any debt. So I had a lot of freedom to charge very low fees, like, you know, $25, $20 for a treatment. Nowadays, people are coming out of school with huge debt, which limits their freedom and have to, um, that makes it very difficult. So um, there was a book of uh, someone recommended called The Social Evolution of Medicine in the United States. And it's a very kind of history of, you know, coming from the 18th century into the 19th century, the 20th century. You know, in the beginning, you know, there was no status or money in medicine. And then in the 19th century, you know, the and in those days, it was the women. It was the midwives, wives, women, you know, often in, in rural areas who delivered medicine. It was botanical medicine. It was physical medicine. And it wasn't until around the 1850s that more of the uh, patriarchal ways started to push the women out of the side. And then you start to see things like hospitals and and these, uh, then there were these uh, private hospitals. And then, you know, about the Flexner Report in 1911, which was the beginning of the kind of um, structure of what we now know as conventional medicine. So how this has evolved has been, has taken a while, but we've gone from not really a medical profession to the developing of one, to the... Um, becoming something that can be considered a profession to being industrialized and corporatized, which everybody hates. So there's that, and, and, and we can swing back to that for a moment. I've got a question. This is something that's been drifting through my mind from time to time. Sometimes I have stuff go through my mind. I'm like, what the hell are you thinking, Michael Max? Are you out of your mind? Like, where the hell did that thought come from? You have to capture that thought because it's going to... Yes, well, I'm, I'm capturing it now because I want to put this out to you. So, you know, ostensibly we're doing Chinese medicine, East Asian medicine, Oriental medicine, whatever you want to call it, right? Medicine. We're doing medicine. And, you know, we're helping people with their lives. I simplified my life about seven years ago by getting rid of my office and buying a house that I could work out of. You know... Again, ostensibly, I do medicine, but increasingly, and this is maybe just a contradiction and just the weirdness of me, I'm increasingly less interested in doing medicine. I'm not even sure what it is I'm doing right now, but I'm not sure that I want to call it medicine at this point, and I don't know what to call it, and I'm not even sure how to think about it. I'm practicing this stuff that I learned that came to me through various people that are, you know, originated in the East, the Far East, and it helps people with their lives in different ways, and ostensibly, we call that medicine, but I'm increasingly uninterested in thinking about what I do as practicing medicine. You know, and that kind of triggers a thought in my brain cell, 
you know, because when I was younger, I never had the drive to be a doctor, you know, in air quotes, but I did have the ambition to be a healer, to someone to facilitate, uh, to be, uh, to help people in the healing process. How did that first show up in your life? How did that show up? Yeah. How did that first show up? Where did you first notice that? The noticing that you wanted to help people with their lives? Let's see. Well, you know, in this pathway, you know, it was like, okay, all right. Okay. I'm not eating meat. All right. Okay. Now, oh, reflexology started rubbing people's feet and people go, oh, oh, that's good. My headache is gone. Oh, okay. And they go, what is that place you're touching? Oh, well, that's your liver. You should be nicer to your liver. And I was studying iridology for a while. That was a big thing in the 70s. Yeah. And, um, I had Bernard Jensen's book. I was at a uh, natural conference in Long Beach and where all these people had written these books like Pablo Erola and um, Dr. Bronner was there with the funny glasses with little holes in them. Victor Kolovanaskis, who wrote that book, Surviving in the 21st Century. And uh, let's see, I'm, am I losing track of what I'm trying to say? Well, you went to this conference with a bunch of people that were looking at being helpful to people with. Well, and so, you know, with iridology, you're looking at the iris and you go, here's a scurf rim there. There's a break in the fiber there. And there's this going on here. And when you're talking to someone, they think, oh, should I get my affairs in order? You know? And then, okay, we can feel the pulse go, okay, you have some, uh, there's some liver cheese stagnation. Uh, your tongue shows some dampness, like, Okay, we can work with that. That's and um, you know, and as a student and observing clinic and treating patients, like okay, we you know we did this treatment and we listened to this person, and then they got better in a way that conventional medicine was failing, and to me that was really like okay, this, this is something that was really wonderful and, and valuable. And I, I just, you know, really learned so much just listening to patients. You know, that's something that, that we do that conventional medical practitioners often don't have the luxury. And what I found is that, you know, if we listen and deeply, they'll tell you what they need. And what's, what's funny is sometimes later on, someone will say, you know, you said something that changed my life. And I'll go, I did? Really? No, really? And it would be just something very, what, what I thought would be inconsequential in that moment. Right. You didn't remember it, but they did. Yeah, yes. I mean, it didn't seem consequential in that moment at that time, you know. But to that person... It, it made a difference. I remember Ted Kapchick, there was a talk he did as, was doctor as medicine, and that how we listen and what we do have to offer with our words and our presence can make a profound difference in people's lives. And to me, that is really, I, there's a, a colleague who was um, on a plane, and I, th I think he told me he was sitting next to a gentleman from Africa. And the gentleman was asking about what he did. And when he described it and he said, oh, oh, you mean magic? 
And for, you know, it can seem magical, but the way he describes like, oh, of course, it can seem magical in that sense when you touch someone in, you know, in that way with, you know, words or your physical touch or, or with the needle or moxa or, or the herbs. But yeah, that's... Um, so is that medicine? It is medicine. Yeah, it is medicine. You know, and it's... Um, I've often, you know, have this thought about, you know, the I Ching, right? We have these 64 hexagrams, which is represents all the possible change in the universe. So um, when the people come to us, they're in a particular trajectory that has developed, you know, with their life, their lifestyle, and how they work out their constitution, how they work out what they came here with and what they did with that, you know, and where the paths that opened up that they took or didn't take. So, okay, we're on this trajectory. Okay, maybe it's a downward trajectory. Maybe it's flat. And so part of our job is to, how do we change that trajectory in our life? Can we change it? Is it even our job to change it? Yeah, yeah, is it? Yeah, that could seem rather arrogant to think that, you know, that we have that that power, that responsibility. So, and this gets to something I think is a really interesting, patients say this all the time. It's like, oh, you got rid of my back pain. You healed my back pain. And often in medicine, we will, we will take the stance of, oh, I healed these patients. I fixed them. You know, and I get it. We all want to feel like we're, we're capable and we're helpful and, and we're doing something of value. Who doesn't want to do something of value in the world? Are we really fixing people? Can we change someone's trajectory? Or are we doing something else? Uh, that's really a great uh, question of thought. I remember I had a patient who she'd seen other practitioners and just, you know, we were in the middle of a treatment and she said something just out of the blue. And she said, oh, you want me to do some work too? You know, it's like, well, yes. I mean, yeah. And, and that is uh, a really, you know, dangerous mindset to think of us as having that kind of intervening uh, power and, uh, you know, that responsibility that comes with that. You know, but at the same time, we want a woman's period to feel better to her. We want someone's back pain to go away. We want someone to be able to, to digest normal foods that they enjoy eating. We want that for people. That's what they come into us for. Maybe it's like, you know, Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just a, a you know, a health thing, a, a physical, well, it's all connected to emotions as well. I mean, you can't just say, you know, say one without the other. It's like saying there's just one side of a coin, there ain't. But it, it is a curious thing about this doctoring, this medicine thing of, again, it's an ongoing question I have, like who's doing the healing and, and where does it come from? I mean, my suspicion is it all comes out of the patient. Like how that gets coaxed out Maybe that's just a trick of what practice is about. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, our practice is being with patients to help to facilitate a, a healing process and, and how that uh, works out for them. Yeah, that is really a, um, that is such a big question. You know, what is it we're actually doing? You know, we're, everything reminds me of a story. You know, I, I remember in the 80s, uh, Shirley MacLaine had uh, experienced acupuncture. Actually, this person was one of my classmates. And the thing was, is this practitioner made a whole practice of using window of the sky points to uh, connect people with their cosmicness or this process or whatever. And uh, I remember being in Austin. Someone asked me about, you know, having read the book, you know, that they were curious about this. Oh, yeah, that she's a classmate of mine. I know all about that. But, you know, my uh, my wife now, she had someone who was coming, wanting that kind of experience, you know, as a patient because she'd read, the, you know, they read the book. Right. And um, so, of course. She needled stomach 36, earth point, earth meridian, and she had this cosmic experience. Well, we know stomach 36 is not a window of the sky point. But this person, you know, needed a little bit more connection to the earth, to this planet. You know, so there's... Uh, oh, man. This is what I so appreciate about this method in this medicine, that... Yes, we could use window of the sky point to get kind of cosmic. But, you know, if you're already kind of cosmic, it helps if you put your damn feet on the ground. Stomach 36. Oh, there you go. That's what, that's what connects heaven and earth. The trick is to connect heaven and earth. If you got too much heaven, put your feet in the mud. I had a patient who was uh, actually a well-known musician, and uh, he had a lot of... Uh, interesting symptoms going on but he was convinced that when his mother had died he was convinced that she had a malevolent spirit that had attached itself to her and he prayed that this spirit would leave his mother and that he would take this on why would you ask for that kind of trouble i don't know but you know i did uh with lung three stomach 40 which are considered ghost points maybe even burn some sage uh, but and then he got better but he also had a record in the charts with a bullet at the same time so i mean what made the change was it those points or was it having a record in the chart with a bullet <laughs> i don't know but does it matter it's mysterious and everything's connected to everything in a sense so yeah yeah i mean everything is connected but we have to, in our practice, have enough of a sense in the moment with the person to try to be helpful for them in this moment. You know, I think we've all had that experience where people have an experience in our, in our practice. They come and they get acupuncture and it just blows their mind. It just blows their mind completely. And they come back and where they say, they go, that was amazing. Whatever you did last time, do that again. And of course, you can't because it ain't that moment, and they not, they're not that person anymore. What is it? Is that the space-time continuum? You know, you're, you know you've moved along this line, and, and, and you're, you can't go back. Uh, it's can't go back. You're already different. But us humans like that sense of uh, 
deep connection and you know ecstasy uh, ecstasy of connection i guess i would call it no i mean that's something that we humans do require is that is connection and that's something that during the pandemic that has really been difficult for folks is the disruption in in connection yeah so these days you're in uh you're in albuquerque right you're back in new mexico oh yeah well uh you know it is um my wife lorena moved to austin to be with me she was in santa fe and uh, and we got to a point well we could go someplace that's my, my turf or her turf in particular and we we kind of threw the dart at the map and like well up north it's too cold i lived in new york when i was a kid uh california it's Get a license is a real hassle. And didn't want to live in the deep south. I've been in Texas a long time. And well, we both have licenses to practice in New Mexico. Let's just go back to New Mexico. Land of enchantment. Yes. It is a unique place in this country. You know, we have this kind of uh, merging or uh, interface of three distinct cultures the Native American culture, the Spanish culture, the Anglo-American culture and and how the overlapping and conflicts around that. And I mean, New Mexico has been a place where people went to get away from the world. You know, like, you know, George O'Keefe came here from New York to get, and she loved the light. There is something special about the light here. And of course, Los Alamos. I mean, uh, Oppenheimer was looking for a place for Manhattan Project where you, where you wouldn't have neighbors peering over your fence in Los Alamos. There is that. I went to Los Alamos some years ago. I spent a few months in the Santa Fe area. Not like you, you spent years there, but I spent a few months. I remember going to Los Alamos thinking it's going to be this horrible place, right? They built the bomb. I remember driving there. First of all, it's remote, but then you get there and it's like, holy mother of God, the feng shui here is off the charts amazing. It is... uh... It is interesting, you know, and... It is. The way that that place is situated, you know, tucked into the mountains with that big canyon out in front of it, it's pretty extraordinary. I think it was either Robert Oppenheimer or his brother that had some property in the area that was like, that they'd been, they'd had a connection to the place. Like, this is a good place to locate the Manhattan Project. But yeah, so we came back to New Mexico and... um, you know, we started Golden Flower in 1990, and 89 is when I was doing the, the groundwork. Um, and, you know, in the 80s, what we had was what you could get in Chinatown. You know, there was one Taiwanese company, you know, Bryon Herbs. And as the 80s came along, we, we had Khan uh, and Health Concerns and Quali Herb and some other companies coming along. But and you know there were issues with uh, imported products that had undisclosed pharmaceutical drugs, and uh, this was a real problem. We actually had these little black pills. I think they were from Hong Kong. I got them from the Bay Area, and they called the black pearls, and for B syndrome. And I actually had people driving from all over Texas to get these pills, so. We had a parent-teacher night at the elementary school, and Lorena took a couple of these things because she had a stiff neck. And then she was going, Ooh. 
there's something else in here. These aren't just herbs. So I sent them to a lab and they had diazepam. Uh, so I was like, oh no, we can't sell these. I mean, it's undisclosed. It's illegal. It's not in our scope. Actually, it wasn't, we didn't actually have a practice act. So it wasn't actually in your scope. Right. You didn't even have a scope. You're still illegal. You're still illegal. And so that became the first formula that we made, but without the drug. So people didn't like that as much because it didn't have the volume in it. But that was kind of our a primary motivation. I mean, I had formula ideas of my own, but it's like, okay, if we make it ourselves, we have it make, you know, have it made, we'll know what's in it. And then we, you know, then we don't have to uh, worry about getting, you know, uh, herbs that have undisclosed illegal ingredients. Right. That's a big step to go from, I'm a practitioner, I'm getting these herbs, I'm helping people. Oh, these aren't so great. Oh, I'll just make my own. <laughs> I call it a momentary lapse of sanity. I mean, seriously, man, like what was going through your mind? Like, oh, how much trouble could that be? I was talking with my classmates, who was one of my big inf herbal influences, Stuart Morrow. And I had this like, I can do this. And of course, I didn't have a clue. You know, it's like when you have a baby around, right? You have a kid, you're like, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And this was, this is before Deshea was passed, you know, so there wasn't any legal framework for it. And uh, you remember in the early 90s, the, there'd be the, like the black paper over these supplements at Whole Foods and they were raiding Chinatown. And so this, uh, you know, so we had to develop along with the, the law that was passed in 94 and with uh, GMP rules and, and, and the kind of the regulatory stair-step process that happened. So it was um, an interesting process. And, and of course, like, okay, all right, so I have these pills. Oh, we need a label. Oh, literature. Oh, a literature. Okay. Uh, you know, when I tell our staff, you know, our first invoices were done on something called a typewriter. A typewriter? What's a typewriter? You know, with carbon paper, you know. In 1990, I hosted the National Convention in Austin, which was kind of my, I, I was able actually to say to, you know, people, I, I, I got to know people in the national scene because of that. Well, and I'd been going to national conventions starting in 86. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. 
you'll be glad you did. Now, what was the National Convention? What was that? Well, at that time, it was the AAOM. You know, it was the American Association of uh, uh, Oriental Med- of, of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine. You know, and um, starting in 81, 82, we started to have all these organizations develop. You know, professional association. Then uh, I think 1982 was NCCA. It was before they added OM. And 85, I took the first NCCA test in San Francisco. So we, it was the beginning of the development of these AOM structures, you know, like Accreditation Commission, the Council of Colleges, Professional Association. And for me, you know, practicing illegally, uh, uh, the first one I went to was in uh, Florida and St. Pete. To be around other practitioners who were doing what I do. This was really, yeah, I really liked it. I mean, it was exciting. Oh, you do what I do over here. And uh, I met, uh, I mean, some folks from Michigan, you know, Deborah Lincoln uh, and her ex-husband, husband at the time, who'd gotten hauled off the jail for practicing acupuncture, you know, you know, to, you know, to visit with folks who were going through what I went through or was going through, you know, people around the country it was really, what's the word? It just really felt like, it just gave me energy to know that there's people out there all over the country who do what what I was doing in different legal situations. Like, oh, you're, so you're in, in this state and it's illegal. How are you doing that? Oh, okay. Maybe they work with a doctor or maybe they don't. Or, oh, you had a visit from the county attorney. Here's a funny story in uh, Brenham, Texas, which is actually famous for bluebell ice cream. There was a Vietnamese gentleman. Uh, this was a very long time ago now. And his sponsor had uh, a back problem. Now, you know, he knew it was illegal, but he was an acupuncturist. So he got guitar strings, made himself a set of needles. Out of guitar strings. Out of guitar strings, yes. And he treated his sponsor, and the sponsor said, this is fantastic. You need to do this. You know, I have friends, we have neighbors. And so I guess a jealous doctor sent a complaint to the county attorney and the county attorney, you know, went to the DA's office, but the sponsor was a hunting buddy of the county attorney. So nothing ever came of the case. You know, so this is a case where the good old boy system, as as it is, you know, in Texas, many other places, like, you know. That's right. That's right. It, it worked in our favor. It worked in his favor. But, you know, so, yeah. So, I mean, so this was the time when, you know, we had people that were so passionate and devoted. And uh, just, you know, imagine making needles out of guitar strings. And, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm imagining if it had gone to a court case. You're practicing medicine illegally. Well, no, man, these are just guitar strings. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was just wondering, did he use the 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 high high E string or the G string as a G string? I don't know. You know, I think we could get into a whole new acupuncture harmonics. We can make our own needles out of guitar strings and find out. And you know, and to me, that was one of the beauties of okay, if if things got really sketchy. And if you got a box of needles, you could always help people. You know, it's not, it's it's you know it's a low tech 
medicine. It it is. So so these national conferences and these in these organizations that were like coming up out of it. I hear you talking about it, I'm thinking, oh, it sounds like some kind of Woodstock thing, you know? Where where you've got all these individuals like you and you know, people in Michigan, whatever. Some folks have been to jail, some haven't been to jail yet. And you come together and you realize, holy smokes, I'm not alone. Yeah. There's actually, we're actually something. We're not just individuals. There's actually something growing here. And that's, for me, that was a really positive feeling to know that I wasn't alone and that there, you know, people that, that are doing this around the country. And it was, uh, you know, great to, to make friends on that level, you know, doing Tai Chi out on the beach there in, in Florida and, you know, and, and meeting these folks and, and having friendships that are enduring to this day. And, and to be part of this community, you know, over these years has been, um, I mean, it's, it's been a, a roller coaster ride because, you know, kind of the nature of, of this medicine is we have all these different rivalry schools of thought and different perspectives of, you know, what, what we should be doing and where, you know, on the national and, and state levels, you know, there's been these conflicts and um, different uh, political agendas and, and the controversies of the 80s, I mean, excuse me, of the 90s, are no longer controversial. It's just, okay, so what now? Yeah, so, and because of those controversies and because of all that you've been through and, and, and your whole cohort of people that were creating this thing, not even realizing they were creating it until you're doing Lollapalooza down in uh, St. Pete on the beach, the world's different now. I mean, at this point, it's getting harder and harder to find an acupuncture school. You're more likely to find a school of integrative medicine, right? There, there's all kinds of changes. What would you say, I mean, you faced the challenges of your moment, okay? And one of those challenges was, I mean, we hardly even talked about this, but one of these challenges was how do you get good herbs? And, you know, you end up building an herb company. I bet you never set out to build an herb company. But, you know, you you, you rose to the challenge. Right. It was um, kind of an unlikely venture, but it was, um, and that's been fascinating too, to become a part of the herb trade and to be active in that. And because of my uh, involvement in the Herb Trade Association and the American Botanical Council and having uh, distribution overseas uh, and being um, connected and aware of what's happening globally, this is very, for me, it's very fascinating. And, and how, how herbs are, are treated, uh, the access to in different places. And, and that, you know, that uh, Chinese medicine in the West has been growing and becoming more accepted, you know, in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and and even South America and, and Europe. And that's been, you know, to know that that we're part of this of a movement. And that's that's been for me, that's been fun to to be aware of. Like like as I mentioned, going to this World Acupuncture Day, you know, and uh, and being part of that it was it was really I mean, it was fun for me to 
to be a part of this uh, global scene. You've been a part of the global scene. What would you say at this moment in time are the challenges facing our profession? Well, as I mentioned back in my day, we didn't have debt, which gave us a lot of freedom. We also didn't have, you know, insurance uh, reimbursement possibilities. Which gives you a lot of freedom. It does, yeah, because being a part of that system. So our numbers have increased. Students now are coming out with massive debt, which was really limits their freedom and their possibilities. Um, a few years ago, there were close to 80 schools in candidacy or accredited. Now there's 53, you know, so, and what's fascinating to me is like, okay, you know, here in New Mexico, I imagine back in the early, early 1900s, some guys <laughs> around the table with pitchers of beer, bottles of whiskey saying, we need a university here in the territory. And so this has become our state university system. It has evolved into that. So how does an institution, an acupuncture college, become an enduring institution? And, you know, because these schools are mostly founded by charismatic individuals or couples or very small groups. Often it was just an individual. And there's a, a, a founder mentality, but a lot of these schools never got past that energy. Now, New England School now is working with an integrative, uh, what's the word, educational institution. Now, Pacific College, I understand, was bought out by a big education consortium, I think called QuaMed. So that's to me is like, okay, how do these schools become, evolve into something enduring? And I have this thought like, okay, what if our local uni state university had a doctoral of acupuncture and herbal medicine with science level, you know, university level science, clinic at the hospital, you know, with easy loan forgiveness, you know, do rural health care. Well, and some folks are concerned that we would lose the character of the medicine. Because in my day, we would, it was all about chi. We would do exercises about cultivating chi and feeling chi. Would that be lost? But also someone coming up in that type of setting would, would be going to school with people going on to be PAs, MDs, DCs, nurse practitioners, you know, and so um, say Dr. Michael, like, oh, I know this acupuncturist. We were at the university together. We had these classes. I, he was a good guy. You know, so, so we, our education is outside the mainstream. You know, so there's been two streams. There's a stream like we need to be integrated. We need to be part of the healthcare system. So what we do is accessible to people. And then there's another stream is like, well, let's just be barefoot doctors and sit in our little wigwams or whatever and, and just be, you know, off the grid in a sense. But I mean, because I would like to see our medicine available in every social and economic constituency in our society. I mean, because, you know, because I think it's so fantastic, you know, and how that works out, though, you know, but, you know, was it, I have these random thoughts that pop into my head. I, I remember this Doonesbury cartoon where Michael Doonesbury is, you know, he's, something's happening with his knee, and he's talking with the doctor there, 
And the doctor's saying, well, we could do this, we could do that. And then there's a voice behind the doctor said, no, we're not going to do that. And Michael goes, hmm, are you a specialist? Oh, no, I'm the insurance adjuster. <laughs> you know, I'm the one who's going to pay for it. But, you know, that's kind of one of the noble truths is the one who gets to pay for the service gets to determine what service is delivered. But, yeah, that's the challenge is the debt that students are coming out with and they you have to be an entrepreneur and a healer and not everyone has both those skill sets well you do i was lucky i i did have those skill sets and no let me ask you this did you have those skill sets when you began you know <laughs> you know when i was a kid i had a paper route you know and that really gives you work ethic because you got to deliver that paper every day, whether you, you know, you're 12 years old and it's like, I don't want to do it today. You can't do that. You know, you, you, the paper has to be delivered, whether it's bad or, or you got something going on. But no, and, and that was, uh, you know, and in high school, I did what they call junior achievement, which is one of these things that teaches you to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, learn some business. Uh, yeah, and that was... And I think at the time, it was a way to get out of the house on a Monday night, you know, <laughs> which as a, as a teenager, like, yeah, if I can get out of the house on a Monday night and do something with some kids my age, yeah. Yeah. And learn how to run a business and make some money. That wasn't the thought at the time, you know. And you just want to get out of the house. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there was these certain kinds of like business sense things that got ingrained and the, you know, and I had a house when I came back from Santa Fe, I had a house, it was a three bedroom house. Uh, the house note was, I think, $263 a month. So I started off, okay, the living room was a reception. I had one bedroom was my treatment room. Another bedroom I rented out to a roommate. And so my overhead was really low. And then, okay, I got a little busier. Then I, I the roommate left. I used the other bedroom, and then I bought a as a it was a house that was zoned O, zoned office, and so I moved into there. But it was and and I knew folks that were they would rent a room in a place on the more posh side of town, and they were spending a thousand dollars a month for one room in the house that I bought. I ended up with five treatment rooms. I had an associate that worked with me as I got busier. And which was great. It was great. And there was a, a woman who came to me as a patient, went to school, came back and then worked in my office. And so, you know, she would say, oh, John, I've got this person and this is going on. So, well, why don't you try this? And, you know, and there was some folks who, you know, women in particular that would rather see a woman as a practitioner. So I said, well, yeah, why don't you go see Mary? Yeah, Mary's here. And that worked out really well, but it was, yeah, so it was just, it was all very uh, basic and practical, you know, because I didn't have money to have a fancy office and I just like, okay, okay, well, I've got a little desk. And back then you didn't need to because guess what? You weren't even a profession. Well, I wasn't even, yeah, it wasn't even legal. So, I mean, I mean, really, you know, so... So there's a lot of, there was a lot of freedom that you had back in that moment to kind of pivot any way that you wanted to. Nothing was really formed. There weren't society, I mean, uh, associations. There wasn't licensure. 
There wasn't insurance. There wasn't all the structures that we now stand on to say, I'm a professional. We, we had an association that was formed. And um, Houston actually had one of the biggest Asian communities in the country. And so it was coming out of there. And, uh, you know, so there was mostly Asian practitioners. And there was one fellow who was a Vietnamese gentleman who had actually treated the former Speaker of the House. Now, did those guys hang with you or did you hang with them? Was there much connection between, you know, you illegal Caucasian practitioners and those illegal Asian practitioners? Was there much communication? What was going on back then? Well, um, you know, it was uh, interesting, you know, because I wanted to be a part of the movement to create legal status. And um, the way that these folks tend to perceive how things work was a bit different than us white Americans. And their commitment was, was really strong and passionate where, okay, we're raising money for the lobbyists, right? So this one Chinese gentleman said, I pledge 5,000. I pledge 2,000. Then this white doctor said, I pledge 200. So the level of commitment was really strong. And the, the feeling of discrimination was strong. And uh, I stayed active in the community. I know, and uh, at one point, I was like the only white American on our association board. And and they would forget I didn't actually speak Chinese, and they'd be going, medical board, blah, blah, you know, and then they go, oh, okay. And, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm an introvert, and some reason why I'd get up to speak to the folks, and I would have a Gideon Chen to translate in Chinese, which was helpful, because I would only say as much as Gideon could remember, but it was, uh, and a lot of, you know, there was some Americans that were now coming to Austin and to the state, and they would often have a hard time cohabitating with their style, you know, which takes a little bit of patience, you know, because there's language and cultural barriers, you know, because for a lot of those folks, okay, you, you put your money down and you get your law passed. Well, it's a little more complicated in Texas and in the U.S., but it was... Uh, and, you know, and I'd get to hang out with some of these folks. Like, I know June Powell was a senior practitioner. And I could go, what would you do in this situation? You know, so, you know, and so getting to spend some time with these senior Asian practitioners, for me, felt like a, a bit of a, a privilege, you know, to, to, to rub shoulders with these folks. Because me, I was just a, you know, a, a white American who was, stumbled onto this path where, where these, for these folks, this was, you know, this was something that was, uh, you know, their experience, you know, was much deeper than mine, you know, especially at this time. Do you have any sense what they thought about practitioners like you? Like, who are these honky boys coming in and doing this medicine? You know, that's an interesting question because uh, I think it took a while for a collegial respect to build up. And, um, and now when I go back to Texas and visit with some of these old, you know, old uh, friends that well, there's a real feeling of warmth and camaraderie, you know, which, which just took time, you know, to build, you know, so, you know, when I do go back and, and visit with these folks, there's just, it's really, uh, it's there. 
John, what would you say it was that built that connection? Was it that you were trying to get this thing to be legal? Is it that you were interested in the medicine? And was it that you just kind of showed up and you were helpful? I mean, what was it that created this connection that all these years later, you can say there's warmth there? I think it's all of those. You know, there's the patience, there's sticking with it. It's being there when uh, associations were founded. It's, uh, you know, participating and, and showing up. That's, um, yeah, it's that, uh, you know, I was respectful, to, you know, to these folks. And then, you know, I was able to receive respect back. You know, it's, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's um, all of those. I mean, there's, and some of the uh, folks that I knew really had a hard time with their style. You know, and, and there's, it would take longer to come to an, a consensus, you know, in that community because of cultural and language differences. And uh, I think that I was just uh, a little more patient than some of my uh, white American uh, uh, colleagues. Patience. 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 Patience, grasshopper. Well, we should probably wind this thing down. We've been jawboning here for a spell now. And- I, I got a new thing that I'm working with. It's kind of like a little refresher at the end of a conversation. Um, I heard some other podcasters doing this, so I'm borrowing it for a while to see if I like it. It's called a lightning round. Oh, interesting. So what we're going to do is uh, just, I'm going to ask some quick questions and just, I just need like a one or two sentence answer. Just like quick, these are quick snappy, like snack food answers. It'll be fun. You can go as quick as you want or as slow. Okay, because I've, I've been accused of being, like someone asked me a question, I go back to the 17th century and start there. But let's, let's. That's okay. Yeah, no, I mean, we're going to do whatever. So it's pretty easy. So, John, what are you reading right now? Actually, there's a book on the, on the United States Post Office and how the Post Office basically created the United States. I love history and, and, and biographies and, and things like that, but that's been really fascinating. What's the name of that book? Gosh, it's in the other room, but it has to do with the, um, what's gosh, the, uh, how the post office created the United States, I believe that. All right. Well, we'll put it in the show notes. I like that. How the post office created the United States. That's, all right, that's provocative. And that gets back to Ben Franklin too, by the way, but that's beyond the scope of this. Now, if you could travel to the past or the future, which would you go to? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I go back to my past when I was younger. <laughs> that, that would be No, No, you could go to any past. You could go, you go back to the 17th century. Would you go back to the past or the, or the future? Well, I do want to see what happens next. So, Future. The future. All right, because that, that's why you want to see what's next. All right. What's your favorite snack? I did find these uh, gluten-free cookies uh, that are kind of like little round things, but I did have some, well, nuts and berries. I like nuts and berries, yeah. And gluten-free cookies. Yeah. Okay. What's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, You know, it's 
I was a teenage rebel. I left home rather young and kind of charted my own path. And then, you know, as a, as a rebel went into this field of medicine that my father did not think was real at first. That's a good question. And what advice did I pay attention to? <laughs> that, okay, I think you just put your finger on it. There's the advice that we're given and there's the advice that we pay attention to. Yeah, those are two different things. Yeah, they are, aren't they? So what's the best advice you ever paid attention to? Just to just stick with it, just to keep on. I mean, because that's, what do you call that? There's the um, sustainability. Okay, can you keep doing what you're doing? You know, because when we approached the herb business, we didn't have a bunch of money. I had a little bit of money for my practice. So it's how, I guess the advice that I got was to be sustainable in that way that can you do it in a durable way, whatever it is you're doing? You know what I mean? Can you do it on, on the resources that you have? Bootstrap. Bootstrap and, and sustain. Wonderful. And last question. The most heartfelt thing that you've learned from practicing medicine? That uh, transformation is possible. That seems like a not bad place to end it for today. Sean Scott, this has been... Thoroughly enjoyable. Thank you so much for spending a little time this afternoon with me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having this conversation with you, Michael. It's been uh, fun to uh, go back in the Wayback Machine and, and uh, to talk about those times. And, and we uh, hopefully now we can do what we can to ensure a better future as to, I mean, I guess one of my desires was to leave this place, hopefully a tiny bit better for us having been here. It appears you've done some good work. Thank you. It's impossible at the beginning to see how things might unfold, how in the process of solving a problem, you can build a business or a profession for that matter, and how in building a profession, other problems arise. We are fortunate that people like John and others in his generation engaged the challenges and kept moving forward. Today, we have companies like his that provide us with quality herbs. It started out as a way of him solving a problem. It reminds me of the conversation with Dan Bensky and John O'Connor way, way back in episode number eight on the history of Eastland Press. They did not set out to create a publishing company. They were just following their interest in Chinese and in acupuncture. And thanks to them, along with others, we now have a wealth of material in the English language. It's easy to take for granted the resources and infrastructure that we have today. It was not all that long ago. None of it existed. And it would not be here today if not for those pioneering practitioners of the early days who took on some pretty substantial risks. Thanks to them, acupuncture and East Asian medicine has found fertile soil here in the West in which to thrive. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that, 
It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.